The truth is your business is still shit. If it was not shit, you wouldn't be burning cash. The whole point of venture-backed startups is you're not building a good business early on. You're building a good experimental learning machine that allows you to build a massive business at scale eventually. So don't confuse the two and remember the game you're playing. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. And I'm Yaniv. And in today's episode, we thought we'd talk about a fun analogy for what it's like to run a startup, which is a game of poker. Now, hopefully most of you have at least played poker. Some of you might in fact be some really great poker players. And in this episode, we're gonna break down all the different ways in which the game of poker is a nearly perfect, not quite perfect, but a nearly perfect metaphor for what you're doing in a startup. So I'm really looking forward to this one, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. And so am I. I'm actually a terrible poker player and uh, I don't know, all the rules. I don't know how to do it on instinct. I have to have a little cheat sheet in front of me. So for all of you out there who are not great at poker, don't worry, we'll hold your hand along the way. Also, Yanev, this is our last episode of the season. We're heading into Christmas and New Year, and so we're going to take a few weeks off. So please don't forget to subscribe, follow us on all the social media so that you know when we come back for the next season in 2023. We're excited to continue the show and continue to help founders all around the world. Yeah, and just a moment of gratitude and reflection to all of you who've come on the journey with us. Chris, you and I kind of started this thing on an impulse, and we're now up to episode 45. All the great messages that we've gotten, all the encouragement and the validation that we're actually putting something useful out into the world, I don't think we would have stuck with it unless we received that. So thanks so much for everybody. I hope you continue to get valuable things from the show and we will absolutely be back early next year. I must say, actually, Anev, on a personal note, every now and then I'm reminded to look at the ratings, the reviews on Apple Podcasts or what have you. And I'm like, where the heck did all of these reviews come from? They're so kind and complimentary and it really brightens my day and really keeps me motivated. So thank you to everybody who's left those reviews, who've shared it with their social networks, who've sent us personal notes of gratitude. It's been very kind, very motivating, and it keeps us recording these things. So thank you again. All right, with that, let's get into the episode. So Yanev, this idea of startups as a poker game is one that you brought up and suggested we do. So how about you frame it up for us, explain the metaphor and how it connects to startups. So there are a few things about a poker game, and I guess I'm thinking of a game of Texas Hold'em in particular for those who play it. It's the most common tournament format. Like you, Chris, I'm not actually a big poker player, but I've played enough poker and I've read enough books about poker and watched enough movies about poker. Casino Royale is obviously the best that I really see a lot of commonalities between how great poker players play the game and how great startup founders play their game. And it is a game. When I say it's a game, I don't mean that it's not serious. But what I mean is it has rules and techniques that you really need to think about. And so I just wanted to talk about a few of the high-level commonalities, and then we'll dive into each of them and talk about how they apply to startups. The first way in which startups are like poker is that it is iterative. You're not just playing one hand, you're playing multiple hands, hand after hand, and each time you learn something, and each time things fall a different way. The second is that poker has a concept called blinds, which is even if you're not participating in a hand, you have to bet a little bit. And that to me is very much like the concept of burn rates in a venture-backed startup, where you are slowly losing money 
the countdown to zero dollars is on. The third thing is you have to make decisions based on uncertain information. You will never know everything that's going on. So you need to internalize that and still be good at decision making. The fourth is progressive learning. You need to learn things a little bit at a time and build on that and make use of the fact that you're not going to learn everything at once. The fifth is what's called resulting or avoiding resulting, which is being really clear about the difference between the quality of the decision and the quality of the outcome. Because again, this is a game of chance. That is true for startups. It is true for poker. So you really need to separate those things. And the final thing, which is maybe not the best thing that you want to hear as a startup founder, but it's certainly true, is there is a relatively low probability of a successful outcome in any given match. And so you need to be aware of that and consider what that means for you as an entrepreneur, as a founder, and as part of a broader career. So that's a high level thinking. Chris, should we jump into the first one and talk about iteration? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Okay, so one of the key things that we've talked about startups in previous episodes, Chris, is that you're not doing everything at once. And the whole structure of venture capital and growth capital is based around that insight that what you're really trying to do is progressively de-risk the risks that stop you from becoming a successful multi-billion dollar business, right? That's why we have different funding rounds. And we've talked about in each of those different funding rounds, you're trying to prove something different to your investor. Early on, you really just want to prove perhaps some early product market fit, some early demand. Then you need to build out the product and get to a certain amount of scale, and then you need to prove profitability. A couple of episodes ago, we talked about prioritization. We talked about sequencing and the fact that that is, in a sense, the core competency that startups have is to get really good at prioritization and sequencing. And I know, Chris, this is something you talk about a lot with your clients. Yeah, so I think this idea that it is an iterative game is really, really important. And you're right, it really maps nicely to poker. And as you go through each hand or each card that gets put down in that set of cards in the middle there, you learn more information about the strength of your hand and what decision you should make next. And the same thing is true with startups. And one of the most common mistakes I see founders make is that they're trying to do everything all at once. And they just feel like everything is a priority. They got to build all the features. They got to build the Ferrari version of their product. They've got to solve all the problems. Oftentimes they're domain experts or they have this vivid dream or vision that they're trying to create in the world. And they're not understanding the idea that they need to break off these small iterations, what I call minimum viable iterations, and prove the right thing at the right time to unlock the next major milestone. And that milestone is often funding, but it could be a whole bunch of other stuff, partnerships and go-to-market tactics and product features and what have you. We've talked in the past as well about starting with something embarrassingly simple, embarrassingly narrow, solving a very specific niche constrained problem. I was actually just talking to a founder of a brunch here in New York City. I'm actually traveling right now about this idea. She's actually a little bit of a genius. She's quite young. She's an expert in AI and machine learning, and she's building a really incredible startup. She just raised a bunch of money. And within just a few sentences, it became clear that she was ready to boil the ocean. She was ready to build all the things to bring her big vision to life. And that would have taken her just a lot of money, a lot of time and a lot of failure, a lot of pain and really an absence of traction because she would have had nothing to give to end users and to grow for many, 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 many months. 
And so what I spoke to her about is like, whoa, whoa, pause. That vision is amazing. You now need to find that embarrassingly narrow thing. And I gave her a specific example. And again, her immediate reaction was, oh, that market size is way too small. And that's way too niche. And how do I deal with investors who will look at that and say, that's not a big enough opportunity for us. And I had to explain to her that you will add the next adjacency and the next adjacency and the next adjacency. And so when you go to that investor and you say, hey, here's my big multi-billion dollar idea. And on the way to that idea, I have staked out some ground. I have solved these first few steps. And so now what you're able to tell the investor is not only do I have a big, bold, ambitious idea, I've also proven that I know how to build a product that people want to solve a real problem and to garner some amount of traction for that idea. So I now have both things in hand. I have a big, bold idea that's potentially worth billions of dollars and demonstrated operational success in the first iteration of my business. And that's just such a powerful idea. And I think one that was useful for her over that brunch and useful for many of the startups I work with. And the funny thing is that although the mechanism is different, there's a similar thing that happens in poker, right? Where let's say you're playing a game of Texas Hold'em and you've got pocket kings, right? Which for those who don't play poker is a very strong hand. An inexperienced player, I've done this before, puts a big bet down straight away. And of course, what happens? Everybody else folds and you hardly make any money, right? So what's common here is patience is a virtue. It's funny because you need to be urgent, right? There's this sort of sense of hustle and grind and existential risk that happens in both poker and in startups. But if you are impatient, if you try to do too much early on and get ahead of the game, you're actually just shooting yourself in the foot. So you really need to stage and sequence and in some sense, build things up. And actually, this applies to founders I've seen, particularly very technical founders, where they're actually over-engineering the code, the software, and they're building it to scale and trying to solve for technical debt before it occurs. And they're trying to super future-proof the code. And, and it's like, you do not actually need to do any of that. You just need to make the first minimum viable iteration work. And you need to just prove that some of this stuff works on a business level before thinking about infinite scale and all this other stuff. So that's another area where I think there tends to be an overinvestment. I have another startup I work with where their engineering team is wanting to rebuild the front end because it'll make things go faster. And I'm like, this is not the priority of the startup right now. Right now, the startup needs traction. They don't need developer happiness. They don't need to speed everything up by 10% in terms of engineering. They need to ship changes to the product that remove the growth bottlenecks. Even though the code base on the front end is something you think is suboptimal, it could be improved, you need to pay off that technical debt. The technical debt will need to get paid off, not now. That is not the next hurdle this company needs to go through. And it was a big argument. The head of engineering is like, we need to pay this debt off and it's slowing everything down and the engineers aren't happy and it's not helping with recruitment or retention. It's like their job is to ship net new value to market so that this startup can survive. It's not to pay off this technical debt right now. Now, of course, this is not the rule all the time. Your situation may vary, but there are examples where you have to pick the exact right thing at the right time. There's a whole episode that we did a few episodes back about sequencing and prioritization. So be sure to check that out. Yeah, I think that's actually a really important point. You should expect if your startup is successful to have to pay down a huge amount of technical debt. And think about it. There's good debt and bad debt. We talked about that before as well, right? And if you have access to this line of credit, which is in effect a technical line of credit that you can use to build a better business, to build a better product for your customers before you scale it, then you should absolutely do that. So all of these things, iterative, be patient. Don't build more than you have to do and contain your excitement. Key for a poker player who's got a good hand. 
contain your excitement so that you can actually build the business in the right way. Now, the next analogy is the burning of cash. So in poker, there is the concept of blinds, which is you need to put some money into a hand, even if you don't end up playing with it. There's a price of admission to being part of the poker game every hand, which means if you start with a pot of money and you just keep not playing and not playing and not playing, there is a countdown clock to you running out of money. And of course, it's the same with startups. You are burning cash as you go, and you absolutely need to make sure that before you hit zero on that doomsday clock, we run out of runway. We talk a lot about runway, and that's really because you're putting down your blinds, you're putting down your blinds, which is all of your costs. You need to achieve escape velocity. You need to take those blinds seriously. You are on borrowed time and you cannot be complacent about that. So I think that's another lesson from poker, which is you need to balance patience and impatience, right? We were talking about being patient, but at the same time, you're on borrowed time. So you need to be bold. So Yanev, I just want to make sure we qualify some of these terms because there's actually a couple of implicit metaphors that we're using that we're very familiar with that I want to make sure the audience is super connected with. And for some segment of the audience, these will be obvious, but for some segment, they'll be worth defining. So when we talk about your burning runway, burn is how much money your startup is making versus how much you're spending. And typically in a startup, you're spending way more than you're making. And that difference is called burn. You're burning the money that your investors gave you because you're not spending revenue, you're burning capital. Runway is how long you can keep burning that capital until you hit the end of the runway and you crash and burn. We're mixing a lot of metaphors here as there's kind of aviation metaphors and poker metaphors. And then Yanev, you talked about you're going to be spending money whether you'd make decisions or not. That's typically because you have like, you know, Amazon cloud services that you're paying for. You have your salary you're paying for. You have your intercom fees for your marketing automations. You have some amount of money that's going out the door, your OPEX, no matter whether you make a decision or not, it's going out. And so you need to make great decisions every day, every week. Otherwise, you're just burning that capital for no reason. And then again, if you touch on escape velocity, that means either making enough revenue that you're now no longer burning capital, but you're making profit and so that you can escape this doomsday clock, or you've proven enough things in this iterative game that investors will give you the next round of capital to extend that runway out. And so that's why this is so important that you realize you have to be making great decisions and executing super well because those blinds, those little payments are coming out of your pile of money every day, every week, every month, whether you like it or not. One of the things that really speaks to me about this is one of my pet topics. I know I've mentioned this before is about risk and having the right understanding of risk for startups. As with poker players, the biggest risk is being too conservative, too risk averse, right? Just basically waiting around, making a bunch of small moves, never really getting the big win while your capital burns down and down, bleeding out from the blinds or from your burn rate until you just lose. And so when people at a startup think about risk, you really need to consider everything else in the context of that meta risk. The meta risk is that you just never make it. You've run out of time, you run out of money before you've made it. So being really conservative might feel safe. It's somehow the most dangerous thing you can do. You need to take big, bold risks. You need to be calculated about it. You need to be thoughtful about it. You need to understand your probabilities. And this is the perfect segue to our next topic, which is making decisions based on uncertain information. This is one of the types of risks you're going to need to take. Good poker players don't pretend that they're making decisions in the context of perfect information. They're not chess players. I can imagine a lot of poker players are probably quite bad chess players and even more so vice versa. 
Good poker players master decision-making in an uncertain environment, meaning they know that there's a whole lot of stuff they don't know. They are thinking in probabilities, but they know they are taking risks and making decisions in a context of uncertainty. And the big takeaway from this is if you wait until you're sure, until the environment has become sufficiently certain that you are comfortable making that bold move, that the probabilities approach one, then you've waited too long. You've missed most of the best opportunities to learn. Even more, you've missed the best opportunities to succeed because somebody who is better at this sort of decision-making in the context of uncertain information will have taken your lunch. So again here, Yanev, I think it's actually really worth explaining the game of poker in this particular area to really bring this metaphor home, right? You talked about chess. In a game of chess, you know exactly where your opponent's pieces are on the board and you know where your pieces are on the board. And so you kind of have perfect information. You may not know what moves they're going to make next, but you can make some pretty educated guesses. And you're working with an almost complete set of information about what the possible moves are and what you might go do next. In poker, for those who haven't played it or haven't played it a lot, you have what's in your hand. You have a few cards that were dealt to you by the dealer in your hand. And then each turn, another card gets revealed in the river, in the set of cards in the middle of the table. So everybody has the information about what's in the middle of the table, and they have the information about what's in their hand, but they don't know what's in everybody else's hand. So you're by definition working with partial information, and you don't know what the next card to come down is. So you don't know from turn to turn whether your hand is going to get really strong or it's going to be a nothing burger. And again, I'm not actually a great poker player here, but one strong hand in poker, for example, is to have four of a kind. Well, if you have two of a kind in your hand and there's a third one on the table, you may or may not get a fourth one. And so all of a sudden you have four of a kind. That's amazing. And you've gone from a pretty strong hand to an incredible hand. You just don't know that that's going to happen next. You have no idea. And so you need to make a bet. You need to have a certain posture. You need to make certain decisions without knowing what's going to happen next. And that's what Yanev is really talking about here is you need to make bets in terms of product features, go-to-market strategies, partnerships, fundraising, without knowing what the market's going to do next, whether or not the next hypothesis is going to get proven or disproven, whether this employee is the exact right employee for the next thing you need to achieve. You need to make those calls without knowing what the next card in the river is. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Chris. So just to be clear, this is not an excuse to throw caution to the wind and just be like completely crazy. This is about understanding probabilities and making smart moves while you still don't know whether it's going to work or not going to work. No matter how strong your hand is, given this uncertain information, you could still lose. But that doesn't mean that you should be paralyzed with indecision. You need to be bold. I keep using that term. Poker favors smart, bold moves, both smart and bold. And the same is true for startups. It's actually interesting because it's also a game of probabilities because you definitely don't know what's in everyone else's hands, but the probabilities of what's left in the deck start to shrink a little bit. And so you can make some educated guesses about what might be still in the deck, might not still be in the deck as the game plays out. And so similarly with startups, you're trying to maximize those probabilities and you can maximize them by having the right kind of investor, the right kind of employees, the right kind of advisors, the right kind of operational experience on the team and the right kind of research, the right kind of experiments, all this kind of stuff. You are trying to maximize those probabilities, but you're ultimately going to have to make a bold bet. And that's why this metaphor about poker is just so compelling. It's also interesting to note, and maybe something we should have mentioned at the top of the episode, 
Some of the best founders and VCs in Silicon Valley are avid poker players. They actually love the game of poker. And I think it's because they understand this metaphor explicitly and it tickles the same itch in their brain. And so there's actually a quite an overlap between poker and startups in the Silicon Valley ecosystem broadly, not just in the Valley, but across the world as well. Chess players memorize opening books. Poker players memorize probabilities. And exactly what you're saying, Chris, a really excellent poker player can look at their hand, can remember what came out of the deck, can look at it what's in the middle of the table and make some really smart guesses about probabilities of success in their hand. And then they can overlay the human element as well. It is based on a foundation of understanding the probabilities, understanding the lay of the land. And I think that is where a good founder, that's where the skill comes in, right? Which is you're making bets, but you're not just doing it wildly and blindly. You're doing it based on the best possible information that you have available to you that helps inform your understanding of the risks and potential rewards. So the next area we wanted to talk about was progressive learning. Remember the blinds, remember the burn rate. You are bleeding out. It's in the structure of the game. You need to take some big but calculated risks to come out on top. Like I said, being risk averse is very risky. So how do you take calculated risks we talked about the fact that you need to understand your probabilities. And in the context of a startup, what we talk about, and we use this vocabulary, it's quite commonly used in the venture space, is progressive de-risking. You have a vision of a incredible company that will change the world. And you're making a bunch of assumptions about what needs to be true for you to succeed at that. And each of those assumptions represents a risk. Because if your assumption is wrong, then your startup may not succeed. And so what you want to do is lay out all those risks and sequence them from riskiest to least risky. And you want to tackle the riskiest things first, because if you're going to fail, you want to fail fast before you've spent all your time and capital and life force on this thing. So progressive learning means let's not boil the ocean. Let's find the thing that is most likely to be wrong in our set of assumptions that make us think that this startup is a good idea and give ourselves comfort that we're not wrong or learn that we're wrong early. And then we can pivot, we can wind things down, we can do whatever we need to do, given we have learned that thing. And then onto the next thing, narrowing that range of probabilities, the same way a good poker player does. Every time a new card is revealed, they get more certainty. They're still acting in an uncertain environment, but their degree of uncertainty is shrinking and shrinking as they go along. I think the big lesson here for me is the learning part is key. We talk endlessly about having hypotheses and testing those hypotheses, but there's two key mistakes I see here. The first is to not have good instincts about where the world is going, could go, should go before they start you know, collecting all sorts of really quantitative data. And then the second one is when collecting the data, they don't learn the right lessons. The example I love to give here is, is about survivorship bias. And I think I've told this story before on the podcast, but in World War II, there were these data scientists, essentially, who were looking at the planes who came back from being out in the field. And they were trying to analyze where all the bullet holes were on the plane so they could try to up armor the planes so they wouldn't get shot down. And so as the planes came back, they would study where the bullet holes were. They would see where the plane was most likely to get shot. And they decided, well, statistically speaking, it happens here, 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 and here. Let's add armor so that the planes don't get shot down. And one statistician said, hang on a second, statistically speaking, we should be adding armor where the bullet holes are not appearing on the planes. And all the colleagues thought they were crazy. Like, what are you talking about? The planes are getting shot here. We should add armor here. We don't want them to get shot down. He's like, the bullet holes we're seeing are the bullet holes the planes can take and still come home. The planes that get shot down 
are not coming back home. And they're not coming back home because they're getting shot in those other places. Those other places are the weak spots where the planes are getting shot down. So we need to up armor the other parts of the plane. So this is a mistake that founders make where they collect data, they study hypotheses, but they make the wrong inferences from the experiments or from the data they're getting from the market, or they make hard pivots instead of small pivots to improve the execution or the quality of their product or the quality of their messaging and so on. And so it's not just about making sure you're learning along the way and de-risking along the way. It's also about learning the right lessons and making the right changes to play this iterative game that we keep talking about. And I think both survivorship bias and confirmation bias are a very potent combination in leading you astray because you have built your startup because you believe in it, you have conviction. And it can be really dangerous to have that conviction because you can interpret all of your data through this lens. And in fact, the origin of this particular episode was I was on Twitter talking to some founders and I made the point that you shouldn't love your startup too much. You should care about it a lot, but not too much. And, you know, that seems slightly unorthodox. You know, there's a whole this huffle porn that talked about how devoted you should be to your startup. And my point was exactly this poker point, which was the genesis of this episode is if you care about it too much, you won't recognize when it's failing, when it's time to fail, when you need to fold your hand, when it's not working, right? If you care too much, you are in the world of confirmation bias. You know, your startup is not your baby. Your baby, you want to keep alive at any cost. If you try to keep your startup alive at any cost, you are going to be going through the gamut of cognitive biases that will stop you from being successful. So you need to have quite an objective view of this thing, Chris, to your point of making sure that you learn the right lessons and that you realize that building a startup is mostly about learning, especially when you're still burning cash. The truth is your business is still shit. If it was not shit, you wouldn't be burning cash. The whole point of venture-backed startups is you're not building a good business early on. You're building a good experimental learning machine that allows you to build a massive business at scale eventually. So don't confuse the two and remember the game you're playing. The game you are playing with venture-backed startups is a game of learning and risk-taking, not a game of nurturing. I want to repeat what you just said to make sure the audience heard it. In a venture-backed Silicon Valley-style startup, in the early days, you are not building a great business. You are building a learning machine so that you can figure out what it'll take to build a massive business. That is such an important thing you just said there, Yanev. It's so counterintuitive to people who come from ecosystems outside of Silicon Valley where the examples they see around them are people building great small businesses and optimizing for revenue and creating partnerships with suppliers. And they're really taught all the wrong things about a Silicon Valley style startup. And I love what you said there. In the early days, you're not trying to build a great business. You're trying to learn how to build a massive high-scale business. And that is so interesting and so important to know. Thanks, Chris. And yeah, it really does come down to know the game you're playing. If you want to build a really successful small business, build a really successful small business, but know the game. That's right. Now, the other thing is that the funding environment has changed and there's talk around the industry of, okay, now you need to be a profitable business. You need to show good business fundamentals. The punch bowl is being taken away. And that's true to a point, but I think it's really important to understand what that means. It doesn't mean you're not burning cash anymore. Again, if you're not burning cash, you don't need the venture capitalists. And at some level, the venture capitalists understand that, right? That you are taking that capital to test these ideas, but it probably changes the order in which you test the ideas. Again, I talked about progressive de-risking and the fact that you should take on the biggest risk first. 
The biggest risk, say, in 2021 may have been you can't grow fast enough or it's not a big enough total addressable market. In 2022, going into 2023, the biggest risk might be this thing will never achieve positive unit economics. In other words, there is no pathway for this thing to become a profitable business. Investors might now, and you might now, see that risk as a bigger one than the other. But don't mistake that for I am building a profitable business from the beginning and that's the aim. If you are profitable from the beginning, that is a side effect of the fact that you have focused on a different thing to de-risk, not that you're actually playing a different game. Yeah, that's right. I think there's really too much being made about this new economic climate. This is about efficiency. It's about executing better than perhaps was tolerated in the past. So you need to execute better, run more efficiently, and not overcook your headcounts and overcook your experiments and overcook your growth. But it does not change the fact that you are building a high growth product led Silicon Valley style startup that requires capital, requires a burn rate, requires taking the right kind of risks. And it requires being bold and ambitious and changing the world in some way. And so, yeah, the valuations get adjusted, the expectations get adjusted, but the game does not change. Yeah, seriously, if you're talking to venture capitalists who are insisting at an early stage that you're a profitable business, walk away from them. They're idiots. I think I'm confident saying that because if you are building a profitable business, even if you need access to growth capital, there are other probably better sources of growth capital than venture capital, than equity-based capital. If you're a profitable business, you have access to debt. So you can borrow money against your future revenues, your future cash flows, and you can keep all the equity to yourself. You don't have that strong expectation that venture capitalists have of a 100x return. Make your life easier and keep away from the VCs. Yeah, go talk to Matt over at Tractor Ventures. Go talk to Matt at Tractor Ventures. He's fantastic. We've had him on the show before. Friend of the pod. That's friend of the pod. But, you know, I think VCs who think that they only invest in profitable businesses, they don't understand what game they're playing. And the last thing you want to do is get into bed with people who don't understand the game that they're playing. The next thing we can learn from poker is a phenomenon called resulting. And by the way, I learned about this in a fantastic book called Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke, who is a professional poker player turned leadership coach. And I owe a big debt this episode comes from things I've learned from that book. And it's a really great book. I encourage you all to learn it. But the key difference between a good poker player and a bad poker player, according to this book, is how they actually evaluate the quality of their play and how they learn, right? Good poker players separate the quality of the decision from the quality of the outcome. We're thinking in bets. We're acting on uncertain information. And that means from the point of view of the player, luck plays a part. You don't know when you make a bet, whether it's going to turn out well or not. Sometimes you make a terrible bet and you just get lucky. Sometimes you make a really good bet and you just get unlucky, right? You maybe went all in at the perfect time and someone else had pocket aces and you lost and you're out of the tournament. Now, a good poker player will say, okay, I made these decisions based on these criteria. Were they right? Can I evaluate and learn how to make better decisions in future? The bad poker player will be like, I went all in on a three and a five. And then, you know, I won my hand. I won the tournament. Therefore, going all in on three and fives is a good strategy because it led to a good result. And then these players start to get superstitious effectively. They're no longer thinking about the probabilities. They're just remembering when they made a bad bet and they won, or they made a good bet and they lost. And they start to shape their thinking and their play based on that. And that is called resulting. In other words, you are evaluating the quality of your play based on the quality of the outcome rather than the quality of the decisions. And that is so dangerous, right? 
you can get lucky. You can get unlucky. You need to continue to refine the quality of the decisions that you make in the startup. But sometimes you'll launch on Product Hunt and you'll go viral and you'll be like, I'm bloody amazing. And sometimes you'll launch on Product Hunt and nothing at all will happen. Now, can you influence that outcome? Yes. Can you control that outcome? No. And taking too much of a lesson from either of those two outcomes without actually thinking about the decisions that you made in the lead up to that product hunt launch will lead you astray, will cause you to make worse decisions in the future. Over time, good decision makers will prevail over bad decision makers. And that's why it is so important to avoid resulting because it will make you a bad decision maker. Also why it's really important to have great people around you, advisors, great executives, great investors to help you make great decisions. And, you know, it goes back to this previous conversation we were having around the game of Silicon Valley venture-backed startups hasn't changed, but the rules have tightened, right? And the expectations have been raised and you need to be making great decisions from day zero. You don't get to learn on the job and startups are so counterintuitive. And the right decision-making, the right tactics, the right strategies are so unusual compared to small business, to standard business, to the way people are generally taught to act, especially in cultures like Australia or Europe, where people tend to be very conservative or very concerned about standing out from the crowd and so on. And so you really need to surround yourself with people who have built high-growth, venture-backed, Silicon Valley-style startups before, not a bunch of academics, a bunch of small business operators, a bunch of local people who are successful, but successful in property development, right? Find people who get this game. I can't tell you the number of founders I bump into who have been taking the wrong kind of advice from the wrong kind of people, either academics or people in the wrong line of work. And you really need people around you who understand this game. They understand it intimately. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to a founder of a business that Angel invested in, and our Angel invested at the pre-seed stage and his main investor at that stage was pushing him to be profitable or at least to show significant revenue before raising a seed round. And this is crazy. Exactly the wrong advice. Got a great product. He needs to develop product market fit. The monetization will come, right? And this is the point. Like if you take the wrong advice, you will make it much harder to succeed as a startup. And so you really need to pick your advisors, pick your investors carefully. Yeah, I've obviously got countless examples of this, but I've talked about a few of them before, so I won't go on a full-on rant. But yeah, the one that came to mind recently was, you know, touching on the episode that we recorded about Pick You the Right Business Model, a founder I'm working with who has an incredible B2C business idea. It's disruptive to her industry. It would change the game. It'll kind of cancel out what a lot of incumbents are doing. And the investors she's talking to in Australia are saying to her, can you make this B2B and partner with the incumbents and see if you can't white label it? And I'm like, are you goddamn crazy? It's like, this is intended to disrupt those guys. That is exactly the wrong advice. And I got actually like physically angry. I went on a rant on Facebook and on LinkedIn and my LinkedIn post actually, although I've talked about this many, many, many times, but I was so passionate about it in this particular post, this post went viral because it is very, very frustrating. So yeah, make sure you find the right investors and the right advisors who are playing the same game as you. One last point on this, Yanev, about measuring the quality of your decisions based on the decision itself versus the outcome, because there's an element of luck, right? There's also an element of good execution. And so, you know, I touched on this earlier in the episode where founders will learn the wrong lesson from an experiment. They'll also fail to recognize perhaps that the quality of their experiment or the quality of their execution was really poor. So they maybe framed up the idea wrong on the marketing page. So the marketing page wasn't converting. And so they're saying, well, people aren't interested in this idea. The ads were not talking about the right specific value prop, but the pain is still real. And so 
you need to be careful when you're deciding on the quality of your decision making and the quality of your outcomes that you factor in the quality of your execution as well. You need great craftspeople, great engineers, great designers, great product managers. And you need to ask yourself, did we execute that tactic well? And do we feel like the evidence that we got back about the quality of that decision or the quality of that test, was it indicative of the overall situation? And so consider that when you're looking at the quality of the decision-making as well. Final point we wanted to make here was that the similarity between poker, especially tournament poker and startups, is there's a relatively low probability of a successful outcome in any given match. The best poker players in the world, when they enter a tournament poker competition, I don't know the exact percentage probability, but their probability of winning is not that high. And that's a bit different from chess. And again, that's because at the small scale, before the law of large numbers is able to kick in, there's just a, quite an element of luck and chance in a tournament, whether you win or lose. Great players, their numbers come out over the long run. And I think that is exactly the point here. And we talked about the iteration. The fascinating things about iteration is that this happens at multiple levels. It's nearly fractal, right? You talked about that marketing landing page, Chris. We iterate in terms of funding rounds and so on. But as someone working at a startup, whether you're a founder or a team member, an operator, you are playing one big hand in the grander iterative game is your career and your life. So again, this goes back to my point is you should care about your startup a lot but don't care about it too much. Your startup is not your life. It is one phase of your life. If your startup fails, you come in stronger for the next one. But when you start a startup, go into it knowing that most startups fail. And the nice thing about startups is unlike tournament poker is they're not zero sum. A poker tournament by definition can only have one winner. In startups, there is no fixed ceiling on the number of successful outcomes. However, the fact is, if you look across the board, most startups fail. There are definitely ways you can improve the probability, just like a good poker player. And hopefully we're helping you improve your probability, but still more likely to fail than achieve enormous success. And you need to be able to walk away from that instead of feeling like you have failed, like you have burnt yourself out and lost your baby. You should feel, sure, a bit bummed. It's human to be bummed out when you don't win, when you fail, when you put a lot of effort into something and it's unsuccessful. But think of all the things that you can take away from that, all the learning, all the experience that makes you come in stronger for the next one. You come out a better player, a better founder, a better operator for the next startup you work at, and you have grown and progressed in your career. Internalizing the relatively low probability of a successful outcome, this is not about being pessimistic. This is about being realistic so that when, as is likely, you fail, you can pick yourself up and move on to the next thing with a smile on your face. You know, we've talked about this idea that failure is not only an option, it's an essential part of the process. I was talking to a founder recently who was telling me about his previous co-founder. They had a failure together and the founder I was talking to dusted himself off, got back on the horse and started the next company. And the other founder was completely dejected. And in fact, was dejected for a decade. He never got back into starting startups and took it very, very personally and was kind of really quite depressed about the whole thing for a long time. It impacted his self-worth. And, you know, we're talking about that difference in reaction. And ultimately, actually, VCs like founders who've had, you know, one or two failures in their past. Now, of course, they like it better if you've had successes, but they would rather bet almost on a founder who's failed and learned the right lessons 
than a founder who's never started a startup before. And this is something, again, that's culturally counterintuitive outside of Silicon Valley. We think of failure in countries like Australia or Europe as almost a black mark on your record. It's like a bankruptcy. It's like a reason that you should never be trusted again. And that's just not the way it works in Silicon Valley culture and in startup culture. In one of my more significant startups, we were investing in that quite a long time. I probably stuck with that startup probably a year or two too long, and we didn't fail quickly enough. Upon finally exiting that company, I wrote a long post and still up on Medium. I think I called it the 39 things I've learned from startup success and failure. And it actually turns out, you know, most of my advisory work, most of the things I talk about with startups are not from successes like Uber but are actually from contrasting with my failures at previous companies. And so it's the contrast of what I was doing in my own startups and what I learned at Uber that really helped me to crystallize and formalize and articulate what it looks like to be successful in startups. And so that failure in my career has been invaluable. I sometimes have described it as failing up. And it's just been an essential part of my process. And as you said, Yanev, it's an essential part of life. It's an essential part of a career. It's an essential part of startups. It's an essential part of the tactics of quarterly and weekly execution. It's turtles all the way down. It's fractal. Failure is part of the process at every level of life and startups. And so get out there, make some bold bets, fail a few times, learn, dust yourself off and try again, as the song says. It's funny, I think about the modern education system. I'm product of the modern education system and was always, I guess, what they call a high achiever. I've got good grades and so on. But I actually think I learned bad habits from that, right? Which is that if you apply yourself, you will succeed. And I didn't have to deal with failure very much because the school system and the university system is more like a game of chess, right? If you make the right decisions and put the right inputs in, then you're pretty assured of a good outcome. And so you never have to confront failure. And I think it's still something that psychologically as part of my makeup, you know, I'm conditioned to sort of level up. It's nearly like a video game. Whereas the real story of life is much messier and embracing failure as trite as it sounds is really a core part of success out in the world. You know, with exams and with assessments, it's like you have one shot to get this right. And you have to go away in a dark corner, figure it out, study, 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 write that essay, and you have to hand it in and you get a mark. And that's it. That's your mark. That is your report card. And then you move on to the next assessment. And that's not the way the world works. It's not the way the world works. You work with your leaders, you work with your colleagues, you work with the market, you run multiple experiments. There is no moment in time where you get a pass-fail. I mean, you know, there are certainly experiments that fail, there are certainly tactics that don't work out, but it is not the end of the trial. It's not the end of the process. It's the beginning of it. It's part of it. And so the education system is just fundamentally flawed. It is designed for an industrial era where there is an assembly line and you put your widget in the machine and it moves down the line and someone else puts another widget in the machine and the, the bell goes off and you get to wipe the sweat off your brow and go home. And that is not the culture you live in. If you're listening to this podcast, that is not your life. And, you know, there are people who are certainly desperate. There are certainly people on assembly lines. There are certainly people who have circumstances that you and I are never too privileged to understand. But if you're listening to the sound of my voice, that does not have to be your life.
and you need to kind of break open your cultural context and your cultural conditioning and yeah, rethink the game that you're playing. So it's very exciting. It's very, very exciting. And, and hopefully, you know, this season of the podcast, we're hopeful that the episodes have served you guys well and some of our perspectives have been helpful. And I think this has been a great episode to summarize all of our thinking and all of these kind of counterintuitive frames of mind that a startup really encompasses. And if you have gotten value from this podcast and want to give me and Chris a little Christmas present, the best gift you could give us would be a review on Apple Podcasts or just a note to us directly talking about how the Startup Podcast has impacted your life and career. And of course, suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the next season. Now, Chris, you have been known for helping startups make better decisions, become better poker players. If people do want to up their startup game and improve their probability of success, how can they work with you? Yeah, absolutely. I have carved out time to work with a small handful of startups. And so if what we talk about on the show resonates with you guys, feel free to check out chrissart.com slash advisory. I'd love to hear from you and see if I can help out. Fantastic. All right, Chris, it's been an unexpected pleasure being able to do the podcast with you this year. So... Enjoy a well-earned break and see you on the other side. See you next year. Bye, everyone.